1: The FT.
2: Hello and welcome to the Financial Times' World Weekly with me, James Blitz. On the show this week, anger in the Eurozone after Portugal requests a bailout.
0: It raises the question, does this Portuguese bailout start to really turn things ugly in some of these northern prosperous core countries, countries where leaders just can't do what needs to be done to bail these countries out and to rescue the Eurozone as a whole?
2: Ivory Coast's president is captured.
3: For a lot of Mr Bagbo's supporters, will have found the manner of his capture quite humiliating. It could lead to further tensions. It's by no means clear that peace has actually returned to Ivory Coast. And potential
2: civil unrest in India following a telecommunications corruption scandal.
1: An impression has been built up that there is very high-level corruption that potentially involves some of the country's biggest companies. That's awakened strong feelings in ordinary middle-class Indians.
2: But first, to anger in the Eurozone after Portugal's request for a bailout and the collapse of the government there. Joining me on the line from Brussels is the FT's bureau chief, Peter Spiegel. Peter, run us through what has happened in Portugal. There's been a request for a bailout, but thus far it hasn't got very far. Is that correct?
0: That's right. I mean, frankly, it's been a bit of a mess. The reason the government fell was that they were trying to push through austerity measures at the request of, of the European Commission here in Brussels, and the minority government was defeated. The Prime Minister resigned, and the government fell. Well, suddenly, Portuguese borrowing costs went through the roof. The interim government, the Prime Minister who actually had resigned, decided we cannot keep borrowing money at these horrible rates. They requested the bailout, but the European Commission keeps saying we will not give you the eighty billion you need until you're able to pass the austerity measures so we 're this, this horrible catch twenty two where you don 't actually have a government in place to put in the measures that the eu is requiring for the bailout money
2: that begs the question. How do you think it is going to be resolved?
0: well, I think what 's going to happen is we 're going to have to pull in the opposition. The current opposition has stated that in general, they support the targets, the deficit reduction targets, the tax increases, the revenue increases, they just don't like the way to go about doing it. So there's gonna have to be some sort of political compromise until the election, which doesn't happen until June, so that the European Commission is satisfied that there's enough political commitment in Portugal to put in these austerity measures so they can get the money. But frankly, it's a really finely run thing right now. They need the money by May because they have a huge amount of debt that comes due in June. The election's in early June, so we really need to see some movement on this in the coming weeks, or else they're not going to have the money to pay down their debts.
2: Peter, Europe, of course, has seen over the last six months to a year a range of fiscal crises, first in Greece, then in Ireland, now Portugal. I suppose inevitably the question is whether this is now going to spread to Spain. Is that right?
0: That is where everyone is watching. I mean, Spain is, both in terms of its debt requirements and its size of its economy, it is twice the size of Ireland, Greece, and Portugal combined. So it just gives you a scale of what's at stake with Spain. Right now, the markets have what everyone's calling a decoupled Spain from the bad three pigs. You know, it used to be PIGS, Portugal, Ireland, uh, Greece, and Spain. Spain has sort of not been pulled in just yet, But let's remember, the same thing happened with Ireland. Ireland was sailing relatively well, and Angela Merkel made the mistake of suggesting that private bondholders might get cut by some of these reforms they were doing in the Eurozone, and suddenly Ireland got pushed off the side of the cliff. So there's a lot of nervousness that although Spain right now has been holding tough, and and the markets have been very happy with the way Zapatero has handled the crisis. A downgrade or a misspeak or, or anything along those lines could really tip Spain over the side. And the question is whether there's enough money and wherewithal within the system to bail out Spain, which is really just orders of magnitude larger.
2: The other question that's emerging, of course, is that as you're seeing these fiscal crises in southern Europe and Ireland, the rest of Europe, core Europe, if you like, is beginning to show some signs of real dismay at being joined up in any way economically with this group. What's happening there?
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think most of the political debate has been focused on the periphery, or as you said, the south and, and Ireland. We've had the Irish government collapse, obviously. We had the Portuguese government just collapse. We've had Zapatero announce that he's not going to seat regulation. But if you look at the politics of some of these, for lack of a better word, these northern prosperous uh, core countries. And I'm thinking about Finland, the Netherlands, Germany. You've seen the real sort of infection of some of these, these outside populist sentiments. I mean Finland is going to have an election this weekend, and we've seen this outside populist party called the True Finns just skyrocket in recent polling. They're so up about 17, 18%, which puts them just behind the largest party in Finland and within striking distance of becoming the, the largest party, which could mean a truly eurosceptic prime minister coming into power in Finland. Now, again, Finland may not seem as core Europe as perhaps a Germany or France, but it's highly symbolic. It is one of these countries that has always been very pro-EU. It is a country that is one of the six AAA-rated countries that is really core to support bailouts, And symbolically, if Finland tips, you've got to start asking yourself, what happens to the Netherlands, where you already have a minority government that is only in power because of the support of an anti-EU party, Kurt Wilders' Freedom Party? You've heard some sentiment in Germany where you've you've got some grumblings, and and frankly, the Free Democrats almost ran on a platform of anti-Europe, anti-bailout. You're starting to see the politics in the core get very difficult for these leaders. And it raises the question, does this Portuguese bailout start to really turn things ugly in some of these countries where leaders just can't do what needs to be done to bail these countries out and to rescue the Eurozone
2: as a whole? One last question. As you look at that wave of Eurosceptic right-wing governments potentially coming into countries like Finland... What does that mean, do you think, for the integrity of the EU as a whole? I mean, are you looking at the possibility of some of these countries breaking away or, or a serious round of Euroscepticism, which changes the whole direction of Europe?
0: I think most people have come to the realisation that it is just too difficult and too costly to break up the Eurozone. Oh, Even yeah. Timo Souni, who's the head of the True Finns, I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, said, look, we are in the Euro. We're committed to the Euro. We're not going to pull ourselves out of the Euro. But well, what I think you can see is this austerity and bailout fatigue, where countries just decide no more. We are no longer going to participate in bailouts. We are no longer going to do these austerity measures And you could start to see this contagion fear, which has always been the great fear, that we see countries like Greece default, or we see countries like Ireland default. And then the contagion starts to spread to Spain, to Italy, to Belgium, countries that are also not quite as weak economically as these other countries that have been bailed out, but are sort of on the cusp. And if that happens, we see a renewal of this horrible spiral that we saw a year and a half ago, two years ago, after the Lehman Brothers collapse, where there's this real risk, of sovereign default, the bond markets go crazy, the borrowing costs for everyone goes up, and suddenly it becomes very, very difficult to pull yourself back out of a spiral like that because you just don't have the political will and the political support to rescue the Eurozone like you did two years ago.
2: Peter, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Let's move to Ivory Coast now and the capture of President Laurent Bagbo. Seized from his residence on Sunday with the help from French troops, attention is now turning to the securing of the country's stability. Earlier today, my colleague Fiona Simon asked Orla Ryan, an FT news editor who has spent time recently in Ivory Coast, how much damage this dispute has done to the country.
3: The fact that Bagbo refused to leave power prompted the European Union to impose sanctions on the ports and other key entities in Ivory Coast. This essentially brought the cocoa trade in Ivory Coast to a halt. And Ivory Coast is the world's biggest producer of cocoa. So the fact of these sanctions and the fact that the trade in the beans stopped had a huge and devastating impact on people in the region.
4: How quickly can things return to normal?
3: I think it's going to be a slow process. I think there are a lot of questions over whether and how um Alassana Watera can rule Ivory Coast. Mr Bagbo, though he did lose the election, did still command a fair share of the vote. I think the first thing that Mr. Waterer needs to do is to establish peace. For a lot of Mr. Bagbo's supporters will have found the manner of his capture quite humiliating. It could lead to further tensions. It's by no means clear that peace has actually returned to Ivory Coast. Mr. Bagbo's supporters may yet seek retaliation against um, Mr. Waterer's forces. A lot depends on how Mr. Waterer handles Mr. Bagbo. There are also allegations of atrocities on both sides. There are allegations that Mr. Waterer's forces have committed atrocities as they took power.
4: The international community does seem to have supported Mr Watara, and particularly the French government, whose troops were involved in helping to remove Mr Bagbo. Is this likely to undermine Mr Watara's authority in the eyes of the Iranian people?
3: Mr Bagbo has always sought to portray Mr Watara as a French stooge. France is the country's former colonial power. Relationships have always been tense. Mr. Water is a former deputy head of the International Monetary Fund. He's Western educated. He has close allies in France. These are things which make him slightly alien to voters in Ivory Coast, particularly to Mr. Bagbo's supporters. The fact that France are seen as having helped put him into power would not help him with Mr. Bagbo's supporters.
4: And what about the North-South divisions? Are these lingering divisions likely to be healed now?
3: Well, Mr Waterer is from the north, so there are questions as to how he can successfully lead all of Ivory Coast. Typically, if to speak in a very sort of general terms, Mr Bagbo commands his support from the south and particularly the west. Mr Waterer commands his support from the north. So it's interesting to see how and if Mr Waterer can rule the south of Ivory Coast. A lot of the tensions around the north and the south link to issues of identity and who is truly seen as Ivorian. A lot of people in the north and in, in, in the west as well, their relatives stem from outside of Ivory Coast, from the poorer countries to the north, places such as Burkina Faso and Mali. And there are many people within Ivory Coast who question if these are really Ivorian. Originally, Mr. Waterer was banned from contesting Ivorian elections because of questions over his nationality. The fact that Mr. Waterer is now president should go some way to tackling the underlying prejudices against people who are from the north, people who are believed to have originated from outside of Ivory Coast. But I think there are still a lot of suspicions about Mr Waterer, especially from Bagbo supporters in the South.
4: And what of Ivory Coast's neighbours? Will they be breathing a sigh of relief now?
3: I think it's probably too early for anybody to breathe a sigh of relief. But it's certainly true that in recent weeks and months, hundreds and thousands of people have left Ivory Coast and headed across the border to places like Liberia and Ghana. So I think that has obviously created, especially in Liberia, that has created sort of tensions there. And West Africa, as a region, it's only recently become stable. So uncertainty and upheaval in Ivory Coast doesn't bode well for the rest of the region. So I'm sure Liberia, Burkina Faso, the countries that neighbour our Ivory Coast will be relieved that we're closer to a resolution in Ivory Coast.
2: That was all, Orion. Let's move to our final topic for today, India and a $39 billion telecommunications corruption scandal, which is threatening to trigger nationwide protests. To talk with me about it is FT Bureau Chief James Lamont. James, what's happened and how significant is it?
1: There was a significant moment this week when the former telecoms minister and some senior company executives were brought before the law in a small, very crowded courtroom in central Delhi, packed with lawyers and journalists, to face charges around their alleged rigging of telecom licences three years ago. Politicians and business people on the whole don't get this kind of treatment in India, but a a real mood that has gripped the country around anti-corruption has persuaded the government and the law to begin to act. So this particular corruption scandal, it's one of a series, is viewed by some as one of the worst in India's post-independence history. You mentioned $39 billion. That's a staggering amount. And according to an official audit was what was lost in potential revenues to the public exchequer through the irregularities around the award of these licences.
2: Who is basically driving these prosecutions? Is this something that's being led by the government, or is it being led by independent prosecutors?
1: It's being led by independent prosecutors. It's being led, really, by the Supreme Court. And this week's court appearances was really following a charge sheet that was 80,000 pages worth that was presented rather ironically on the night of the uh, World Cricket Cup between Sri Lanka and India, which was supposed to be a moment of great celebration for India. But in the meantime, the charges in this very large corruption scandal were uh, were being filed.
2: When you see uh, independent prosecutors or the Supreme Court pushing ahead with this kind of prosecution and it involves a former telecoms minister and uh, a Mumbai-based billionaire, you're trampling here on some very, very sensitive political toes, I imagine. Now, why is the government allowing that to happen?
1: I think that the politicians are now having to face up to a a public mood, which increasingly wants a tougher approach taken to corruption. I mean, in past months here, and and centering around this telecom scandal, an impression has been built up that there is very high-level corruption that potentially involves some of the country's biggest companies. Now, that's also awakened strong feelings in ordinary middle-class Indians around corruption that they possibly have to encounter in their ordinary lives. There is the political pressure now to tackle corruption in India, which is a very fast growing, liberalizing economy. But it's certainly being led by the jurists who seem to be pursuing some of the corporate interests and indeed some of the politicians who may have got into what is called regulatory arbitrage.
2: Just finally, James, is it your impression that with this telecoms scandal, we're at the beginning of the story or or is this the peak? I mean, are are we going to see this becoming a really big issue now in Indian political life over the next few years?
1: I think it's going to dominate Indian political life for a while. I mean, there have been three big scandals. Telecoms is the biggest, but there was uh, concern over the, the Commonwealth Games and the amount of money that was spent on that and where it went. And there's also been a high-level scandal in in the military, which on the whole has been regarded as a, a professional outfit. I think these have triggered a judicial and social activism that will be very hard to keep the lid on. A social activist called Anna Hazare last week went on hunger strike, which of course reminded many people of the kind of Gandhian tactics. And it really has kind of awoken a widespread feeling that India has to get to grips with some of these issues around governance and the relationship between its bureaucrats, its politicians, and its uh, big companies.
2: James Lamont in Delhi, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Peter Spiegel in Brussels, James Lamont in Delhi, and All Orion in London. World Weekly is produced by L.J. Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to
1: ft.com forward slash podcasts.